Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journey. I'm very pleased today to introduce Mark Clayton Hand. Mark recently graduated from Said Business School at Oxford, where he was a Skoll Scholar. He currently works as a venture partner at Unlimited USA, and he's also adjunct assistant professor at the LBJ School of Public Affairs in the United States. Previously, Mark worked as an investment associate at First Light Ventures, a startup investment fund with Grey Ghost Ventures in Atlanta and Mumbai. Well, thanks for taking the time to speak to us today, Mark. I'm looking forward to an opportunity to talk to you about your experience and your journey as a social entrepreneur and investor. Um, uh, yeah, and a good place to start might be just if you tell us a little bit about uh, your background and what you're actually doing today. Sure. Well, my name is Mark Hand, and I'm a venture partner at Unlimited USA, which is an accelerator and incubator for social enterprises in Austin, Texas. And starting in the spring, I'll be lecturing in social entrepreneurship at the RGK Center for Philanthropy inside of the University of Texas. Excellent. Okay. And, and, and so this accelerator is uh, unlimited. Uh, is unlimited here in the UK? Are, are, are they related? They are related. So Unlimited in the UK has been around for about 15 years, funding and supporting social enterprises in the UK. And the founder of Unlimited USA, whose name is Zoe Schlag, she actually looked at the model in the UK and then also looked at the model of Unlimited India where she spent a year and a half working with entrepreneurs out of Bombay. And she asked herself whether or not there might be scope for this sort of program in the United States. And so she traveled to eight different cities in the United States, speaking with social entrepreneurs, trying to find out what their needs were, asking them what it was that they were working on. And what she found was that there was a tremendous amount of energy and a tremendous amount of individuals, mostly young people, who were attempting to build businesses that mixed making money with uh, tackling some significant social problem. And so she got her start in Austin. We launched our first cohort of social entrepreneurs here in Austin, work with those entrepreneurs to provide them funding and support and training and build networks around them. Our real hope is that in funding subsequent cohorts of entrepreneurs that we can build an ecosystem for those entrepreneurs here in Austin and that once we've cracked that code, that we can start to take a look at other cities and help those cities build up socially, social entrepreneurial ecosystems where they are. Right. That's very interesting. How would you characterize the climate for funding and the availability of money for social entrepreneurs in the United States at the moment? I think it's a really exciting time. For, for a long time, impact investors, the people who fund social enterprises in the United States, have been focused internationally. And we're beginning to see um, a, a sort of looking inward at who are the people who are in the United States in our own communities that are trying to tackle some of the problems and issues here. And I don't think that we're quite there yet. I think that there's a lot of energy and a lot of talk, but we're trying to figure out what that looks like. So at, at the Social Capital Markets Conference this year, we had a chance to talk with folks like Lewis Hauer at the Sorensen Global Impact Investing Institute, with Catherine Casey, who's looking at building um, Acumen America, and with other folks that were beginning to look really at, at communities. 
And so I think that it's an exciting time. What we have found in Austin is that there are, there are an enormous number of social entrepreneurs here. We had 75 applications for our first cohort, but very few of them had figured out where to turn for funding for their social enterprises. So we were really surprised and overwhelmed that there was this much activity going on and that there haven't yet really developed robust ladders of funding or support for, for these entrepreneurs operating in our own communities. Right, right. That's interesting. And, and um, I mean, broadly speaking, what, are, what would you say are the, the, the main sources of, of, of funding? Because uh, clearly, as a uh, social enterprise, you can also access uh, foundations and, and other kinds of funding that uh, it might not have a, you know, a, a financial return objective. Sure. So the entrepreneurs that have applied to us, and I think that this mirrors what goes on in other places, are looking for a number of different types of funding. So I can think of one of our portfolio companies, 10 Acre Organics, has actually taken a loan from a local slow money chapter here in Austin. They've launched a crowdfunding campaign. That's another one of the major, one of the major forms of, of funding that we see a lot of. Um, they are at some point hoping to raise a little bit of equity, so that'd be a third category. And then the fourth, and you alluded to this, that the fourth would be sort of inbound grant or foundation capital which comes in in a number of different ways. So it can come in as, as grant dollars that are ongoing juice for those entrepreneurs and their enterprises. And sometimes it actually comes in in the way that equity funding does, which is a burst of capital to help you set you on your way. And that's a particularly interesting use of philanthropic dollars, I think. Yeah, no, it's it's obviously a a a, a changing uh, arena, and this new funding coming on board, and it's still relatively early stage in its development, I suppose. Um, I suppose just looking at the the equity side of things, um, probably in reality, only a small percentage of uh, social entrepreneurs are really going to be well suited to that kind of funding. I think that's probably right. And, and you know what, one of the things that we've seen as the impact investing world has grown is the sort of move from microfinance funding where a lot of current impact investors cut their teeth into social venture capital funding. So modeled after the style of angel investing and venture capital funding. And that's, that's really important. And it's the kind of capital that a lot of entrepreneurs need in order to grow their business, but it's actually just one type of capital. And one of the things that we've seen in Austin, at least, is that a very small number of the entrepreneurs who are building social enterprises are actually looking for that type of funding. And the others are looking for loans or they're trying to grow with the resources that they already have available and build revenue-funded models, um, or they're looking at crowdfunding campaigns. Right, right. A big, big area, clearly. Um, a few tips. Have you a few tips for people? Um, and to, to you know, I, I know to go through uh, the hoops in any one of these areas it can be pretty time consuming, and you're not guaranteed success by any means. So you know, uh, how do you get a sense of you know wh where to go? If you, you assume you're you, you're you're being realistic and and have a sense that you know the equity funding is not for you right now. Um, you know, what wh what guidance would you give? Sure. So I guess I would say that one of the things that, that we push our entrepreneurs to is to be constantly thinking about 
how they can avoid taking on funding that they might not need, regardless of the type of funding, but especially equity funding. Because there are so many different ways that you can test your model, you can build out your customer base without actually having to spend a lot of money and therefore raise a lot of money. Um, and so one of the, you know, I think about one of the companies that we have in our portfolio here um, is a company called um, is a company called Girls Guild. And what Girls Guild does is connect local makers, um, so people who are people in the creative fields, with young women who are looking for apprenticeships in those fields. And Girls Guild has actually been able to experiment very inexpensively with a lot of very critical elements of their model without actually having to build very much tech and without actually having to take on very much funding. And so they can answer a lot of the really hard questions about their business model, like how are they going to get customers? How do they actually manage the interaction between the apprentice and, and the maker? Um, what does success look like in one of these individual engagements without actually spending a lot of money building something that may not be appropriate for the communities that they're targeting? So I guess I would say one of the first things that I mentioned to entrepreneurs that are coming to me asking where funding might come from is to push back and say, is this, is this really what you want to be spending your time on right now? Or can we answer a lot of questions before we go down that route? That's very interesting. What's the question that would tell them the answer to that? I mean, or what's, what, what, what should they ask to, to get the sense of do we really, really need the money? What are, what are legitimate uh, uses of, of, of the capital and what are ones that you, you think uh, that, that, that are tempting but may not actually fundamentally uh, be of help? Sure. So, you know, I was speaking with an entrepreneur who is attempting to build uh, here in Austin a platform that would connect musicians with nonprofits such that the musicians swag could help fund the nonprofits that then reach out and um, reach out and help pull in new listeners for those musicians. And and what I talked to that entrepreneur about was actually putting on an investor hat and beginning to see their own business in terms of the risks to the capital that they're asking for. And so this particular entrepreneur was spending a lot of time building the tech necessary to go out and raise that capital. Whereas from an investor perspective, the main risks are, does this interaction uh, actually make sense? And are these nonprofits actually able to drive listeners to this musician? And is this musician actually able to drive um, revenue into those, into those nonprofits? And so the, the point at which I think that you may be ready for funding is the point at which the riskiest bits of your model are beginning to get answered. And so if once that entrepreneur, and I think that he will get there for sure, once this entrepreneur is able to say, you know what, we've had 50 of these engagements that have all gone well except for two of them, and here's why we think the two of them failed, and we've had 100 nonprofits and another 80 artists reach out to us and we just don't have the capacity to handle them, that's the point at which I think it makes sense to go out and try to find external funding. Right, right. So I, that's very interesting. So uh, saying that you know the equity funding is is at the end uh, a bit further down the road for 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 many social entrepreneurs. What would be the 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 earlier state funding that you would recommend? You know uh, the the first steps. 
Sure. So the you know the the myth about entrepreneurs is that they're big risk takers, and I just I haven't found this to be the case. And there's a lot of good research to suggest that actually really successful entrepreneurs take tiny little steps where they can afford the loss that those steps imply, in order to learn what they need to learn next. And so when I'm speaking with entrepreneurs, I'm always counseling them actually to take take the smallest steps that they can. And that may mean actually staying in the job that you don't think that you want anymore, so that you can continue to fund this learning. You can continue to fund this kind of um, this kind of hypothesis testing. And sort of back to the example of of Girls Guild, which is one of our portfolio companies at Unlimited USA. They both actually still have full time jobs where they're testing all of these things out, and there will become a point at which. They can stop leaning just on their own salaries to fund the business, which is probably the most reasonable place to start when you are attempting to launch an enterprise, and start to look at what I think is a very nascent um, but growing network of support in the United States for some of these entrepreneurs. And so you can start to look at incubators, and you can start to look at accelerators, and you can um, perhaps identify low interest loans that come from your city government. And you may be able to look at a minimal crowdfunding campaign just to get a minimum viable product put together.、Uh, and so I think that they're actually what's fun right now is that there are a lot of opportunity opportunities for entrepreneurs to seek out other types of funding that don't that don't dilute their their、yeah. ownership of their business. And what kind of amounts is it realistic to think about here? I mean, you're not talking about a quarter of a million or half a million. You're talking about presumably, you know,、uh, smaller sums that. Just get you a bit of the way along. I think that's probably right, and and you know, you know, multiple crowdfunding campaigns are appropriate. I think that the if you're thinking like an investor,、uh, if you're able to put that hat on as an entrepreneur, then you're always asking the question: Can the amount of money that I could get my hands on right now get me where I get me where I need to go next? And so maybe it's just a couple of thousand dollars now to have a basic website. And to spend a couple of weeks actually going out and talking to customers, and then it's once we have that, and we think that we actually have what we need to raise another fifteen thousand dollars from our friends and family, based on what we've learned, and then we can get into, you know, we're talking twenty-five or fifty, which is, you know, which is actually not beyond the pale in, in, in crowdfunding campaigns, and and sort of stair-step your. Taking in resources with the progress you're able to make. So, where do foundations fit in, either at the stage of development or in terms of the kinds of sums of money,、uh, and and you know,、uh, to what extent are they really appropriate for social entrepreneurs, or, or or what do you need to understand when you're talking to a foundation? So, I think I think foundations do have a major role to play, and especially in putting money where where commercial capital won't. And I see that happening in two ways. One is with is with especially nonprofit entrepreneurs that either need some grant funding to get started, or they actually, and maybe they have a revenue generating arm that covers seventy percent of their costs, which is great, but they need ongoing support for the other thirty percent. And if we if we see that as manipulating markets. In order to achieve the social good that we'd like to see, and I think that that's a really positive thing. The other, the other way that foundations can get involved is to take big risks on really early stage social enterprises that other investors wouldn't touch. 
and and we've seen and I've seen this happen in really in really helpful ways. So the second way that I see foundations playing a pretty critical role in the space is is actually to take big risks on companies that just that commercial funders just wouldn't touch. And and one example of this is in our our first cohort here at Unlimited USA. There's an organization called Peloton U that's run by an entrepreneur named Hudson Baird. And they are experimenting with ways to wrap a mentorship program around some of the existing accredited online university degrees that students otherwise struggle to complete. And what Hudson has been able to do, what he and his team have been able to do, is, is actually demonstrate that with a little bit of guidance that they can meaningfully affect the graduation rates of these students going through these programs and set them up for success. Now, I think that there is a revenue model in there somewhere for Hudson, but we're not quite sure what it is yet. And until Hudson discovers what that revenue model is, he needs very patient capital just to experiment to get the programming right, just to experiment to make sure that he's actually benefiting those students and that he's he's sending them into other degrees, into careers that are successful. And, and so it has taken, actually, the funding of individuals here in Texas and foundations here in Texas to give him the space and the time that he needs in order to experiment. Right, right. I'm with you. Uh, and what do social entrepreneurs need to understand when they're talking to uh, foundations? Because many increasingly will, will come with an awareness of business and a sense of, you know, understanding of maybe more of how the business world works. Uh, maybe not all, but um, what what are what are one or two things that would help a social entrepreneur build a relationship with a foundation that they might not automatically think of? Okay, sure. I can think of two things. For all, the first is is to look for fit, to to look for folks that have to look for folks that have funded or entrepreneurs that you like, um, to look for foundations where when you meet the staff on those foundations that you really get along with them and feel like they're kindred spirits. I can't stress how important it is to have funders and backers that that believe in your mission and believe in, in your work and that you enjoy actually getting support from. I think the second is that, and this is a lesson from the for-profit fundraising world, is to try to push to know really quickly and to get to know very quickly so that you're not wasting your time with a foundation that isn't very excited about the work that you're doing. So I think about one entrepreneur that I met in Oxford who was attempting to raise a $500,000 seed round for his, at this point, for-profit company. And I asked him, you know, who he had been speaking to. And he said, well, we have have a spreadsheet of about 500 potential investors that we're working through right now. And when you're faced with that many options, and perhaps social entrepreneurs have even more, um, I think actually crossing people off your list very quickly can help you get to the funder's um, that are going to be very excited about your work. Right, that's very interesting. And I think the point you make that uh, to, to, to follow a proven track, if somebody's already made the investment in a similar type area, similar company or something like that, much easier than if you're a pioneer, you're trying to get a foundation that's never done a deal like that before to do it for the first time, I presume. I think that's right. You know, there's a... There's an investor in El Paso, Texas, um, it's called ADAP Capital, which has made an investment in a 
it's probably, and I wouldn't call itself a fair trade company, but is a is a garment company called Voss, V-O-Z. And all of the work that Andy and that ADAP Capital put in to determine whether or not to make that investment is going to make it a lot more likely that they understand the landscape and understand what it would take for another retail-focused ethical fashion company to succeed. Right, and right. So if you're running one of those companies, then you have a real head start if you're talking to somebody yes. that, that has already had a really hard look at the sector that you're operating in, and they can potentially be more helpful to you as a result. Right. And, and does geography matter there? You know, to what extent is it worth looking for a foundation that's not in your home you know, uh, environment? You know, I think I think about the geographic question in two ways. So at Unlimited USA, we fund people locally in part because of the network story, which is that as we build local relationships in Austin that are beneficial to one entrepreneur, we know that they will also be beneficial to another entrepreneur. And then the second, the second way that I think that it's really important uh, or can be important is that you can actually, you can get a lot more touch points with uh, the folks that are funding you. And so our entrepreneurs work out of the same offices that we do and it's almost daily that I interact with one of those entrepreneurs or that Zoe interacts with one of those entrepreneurs here at Unlimited USA um, to solve some sort of question that might otherwise you know never be brought up in the monthly board meeting that we have over the phone yeah yeah that's interesting that's interesting this is really interesting what about the whole question of hybrids and and what you know structuring uh how you're going to structure the company at the beginning of the organization whether it's profit or non-profit and, and 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 some mix of them i mean how important a question is that and and what, what and how well are our social entrepreneurs doing in, in 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 thinking about that question sure so one of the things that's happening right now is there's there's a lot of activity attempting to come up with alternate legal structures for social enterprises besides just for-profit and non-profit. And so you have L3Cs and you have KICs in the, in the United Kingdom and, and you have B Corps uh, here in the United States. And I think those are really interesting models that speak to the fact that there are actually multiple purposes for some of these businesses. The, the thing that I would – there are two, two sort of overriding – uh, principles that I would that I would suggest to entrepreneurs is that they pick a governance structure, or pick a legal structure that actually matches their ambitions for their organization. And so, if what they would like to do is build a massive institution that um, that they eventually sell to a consumer goods company and allows them to go and start three or four other organizations, then maybe it makes sense to set up as a for profit. If they're not actually driven by financial return at all, and what they want to do is grow an organization to 20, 20 employees and um, continue to service a particular population really well in an innovative way, then maybe a nonprofit structure makes sense. Right, I'm with you. Is this a difficult decision for social entrepreneurs? You know, it's I've seen social entrepreneurs wrestle with this conversation, and some of them have chosen hybrids. And so Under the Mango Tree is, is one of the organizations that, um, that I used to work with in, in India, and they actually have a nonprofit and an affiliated for-profit. And I think that the result of the hybrid structure is that you end up running two organizations, and that running one organization is difficult enough. Running two organizations at once um, can, be, can be quite a push. And so 
I think that it's important early on for entrepreneurs actually to wrestle with some of those questions and determine what is the structure that, you know, they can't know for 100%, but determine what is the structure that actually supports the kind of growth that they would like personally to see in the organization that they're building. Right, that's very interesting, that's very interesting. And how did you get into the finance side of things? And can you tell me a little bit about uh, the whole experience at Oxford and the choices that you were, were faced with and uh, when, when you graduated? Sure, so, you know, I think like many folks my age and in my generation, the, the traditional career paths that have been presented to us are rather uncompelling. And so I spent a lot of my career advancing around trying to figure out where it is that I might fit and what it is that I'm interested in. And I spent about four years in the nonprofit world and was eventually frustrated by what I saw as either the lack of ambition to scale on the part of a number of the nonprofits that I was with or as the sort of massive nonprofit institutional machines that dominate the charity landscape. And neither of those were particularly interesting to me. And so through a series of connections, it ended up at an internship at Grey Ghost Ventures in Atlanta, which was a social venture capital funder um, and was so interested in that work and was so excited about the possibility of actually putting capital into early stage companies that I put off business school for two years in order to stay. And, and it was when I went to business school that I began to actually swing a little bit farther afield into the world of commercial entrepreneurship to try to see what were the lessons that were being learned in the entrepreneurship world, um, commercially speaking, sort of the plain vanilla entrepreneurship world, that I could try to bring back uh, into the world of social entrepreneurship so that hopefully we could build organizations inside of this space more efficiently and effectively. Right, that's very interesting. And, and, and what did you ha have any insights? I think one of the things that in the for-profit social or in the for-profit entrepreneurship world that there is just beginning to be an understanding of the role of an entrepreneur as someone who manipulates the networks around him or herself and reconstructs those networks in order to drive value into their business. But there are no green fields, and this is a, a favorite quote of mine by one of my professors at Oxford named Mark Ventresca. There are no green fields, there are no empty spaces, that every entrepreneur is actually stepping into an existing pattern of relationships and attempting to rework those relationships in order to drive value to themselves. And I think that there's a lot to learn there, that, or there's a lot that social entrepreneurs can learn in that way with the modification that the place that we're trying to drive value is to the beneficiaries and to the social problems that we're trying to address. That's a very interesting idea. What does that actually mean? How would you think about that uh, in, in trying to, you know, uh, I guess, make a network conform or, as you say, manipulate a network? So, you know, this is one of the things that we are working on right now with the Limited USA is how do we take some of this academic understanding of entrepreneurs as at the center of networks of their own creation and actually turn that into something that we can make useful to some of our entrepreneurs I'll give you just one way that, that we do that, and it's a very simple way, but at the beginning of each of our trainings or interactions with our entrepreneurs, we ask them what it is that they're wrestling with right now and what it is that, they're, that is really top of mind for them. 
And as opposed to taking a consulting approach and attempting to break down the problem or using a coaching methodology and just asking a lot of questions, um, the first question that we ask is, okay, that's interesting. Who do you know in your network that might have wrestled with this problem before? Or who do you know in your network that would know someone who has wrestled with this problem before? And if we start to think about our networks as the primary tool by which we solve problems and the primary tool by which we create value, then, then I think that there's actually a lot, there's a lot of value that we can unearth and that we can pull out of those networks that we might not have otherwise. Right, that's very interesting. I, that, that brings me to a question which I was going to ask, but it is literally the, on the point of that. Um, and I'm talking to Tom Saki from um, TerraCycle, uh, and we talked about the whole idea of purpose and the fact that um, there, are, there are many people out there that will help you as a social entrepreneur. If you've got a purpose-driven organization with a mission and so forth, uh, you can you you can get a lot of interest and support from people. I think that's I think you're you're hitting on something there that is particularly interesting, which is that the the fact that these organizations have a purpose that is compelling and that draws other people to them actually means that there are opportunities available to social entrepreneurs that are not available to commercial entrepreneurs writ large. And this is a gross generalization. But I do think that that's I do think that that's the case. I've found that that it is it is very easy for us as investors in social enterprises to step into um, a city's economic development office or to go to some of the corporations in Austin, describe what these ventures are working on, and then part of the thing that that we pitch actually to to those potential supporters is the opportunity to work with an entrepreneur that's solving an important problem um, that is trying to figure out how to wrestle with mental health um, in, among Austin's population or attempting like tenure for organics to create new models for how we um, farm in tight spaces. Yeah, that's. I, th I think you're right. I think that's a very interesting uh, development. What would be two or three things that you would say to social entrepreneurs that now since you've spent some time funding and looking at uh, entrepreneurs trying to build social organizations to some pieces of advice? Uh, so I think that the, the first thing that I would say is that the, the hardest part in my, in my mind about being an entrepreneur, and this applies to social entrepreneurs as well as, as, well as commercial entrepreneurs, is the confidence to be able to flip back and forth between creative construction of possibilities that no one else sees, and then to go from that to really destructive analysis of the dreams that you've just built. And, and I think that if entrepreneurs can develop the confidence to be able to go through that step to say, this is what is possible, and then to flip back into, but this is everything that could go wrong, and how do I mitigate against some of those risks? Um, that 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 would that serves most entrepreneurs well. Excellent, excellent. Thank you, Mark. That's been very interesting. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.